Well, thank you, Pastor Rich. Well, as you know today, or if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, we've been walking through the books of Book of Acts, um, kind of in order, and in, in one event after the other. And today we're at the point where we meet a new character, and that is the person of Saul, who later becomes Paul. And I promise you, I always seem to get the passages with messed up names that they sound really close, like Elijah and Elisha. I messed that one up last time. And I promise you, I will call one the other. And they're the same person this time, so I'm always right. So uh, we're going to move through that. But we're going to continue uh, in this book. And this story in particular, um, it's kind of rare for the same story to be told twice in the New Testament. But this one's told three times, just in the book of Acts. It's repeated. And so uh, I think it's a critical passage uh, and, and a great way to understand the rest of how the New Testament unfolds. And so uh, we meet Saul at an event called the Stoning of Stephen. And Stephen uh, has been brought before the Jewish high court, which is called the Sanhedrin. And, uh, and he gives a correction to them, whereas messages before were very gentle and tender and and when he talks to the Sanhedrin, he unloads. He said, anybody that came from God, speaking for God on God's behalf before, you guys and your forefathers would kill them. And it's happened again, except this time it wasn't just a regular guy. It was Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, who was God in the flesh, and you killed him too. And they were furious. Uh, Anybody think that's a little insulting? I'm going to insult your parents. I'm going to insult your parents' parents. And I'm going to land on you and say you did it again. He says that they uh, rebuked, they, they stood against the, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them, saying that Jesus was the Messiah. He said, you, you don't listen to God. You listen to what you want to do. This, this made them enraged. They were furious to say the least. And so Acts 7.58 says this, Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so what does that mean when they lay their garments at his feet? That means he has an official position in the church. Or not in the church. <laughs> in the Sanhedrin. He's, the, he's kind of the, the guy you call when you need thing, someone roughed up, right? And so he's uh, what we would say is a prosecuting attorney almost in that group. And so if they got a problem, you know, we need you to deal with something, you can call Saul up and count on him to go and do what needs to be done. And so Saul's got an official position in that group. He runs out and prosecutes and persecutes the church. And verse 8-3 says this, Saul was ravaging the, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed, committed them to prison. So, raging against the church. House after house, he starts to build a reputation. He becomes the church's first nightmare. Right? He's well known for it, and it extends far, far out into the, his reputation extends far, far out into the countryside. And so, at the mention of Saul's name, 
everyone in the church goes into terror alert. Right? The early church was called the way. And Paul would go way out of his way to persecute you if you were a member of the way. Right? I mean, he would just, he would put a target on your back and go after you. And this story continues with Paul saying later in in the book of Acts, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I punished them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in a raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So this was not a one-time event. Paul had a vicious reputation. If he were alive today and I were to say his name, everybody in here would get a lot more tense. Right? And think about where your car is parked in case this guy shows up. And how am I going to get out of here? He's a scary, scary person in the church. And he's willing to take his oppression on the road. So in chapter 9, he heads for Damascus. Now some people think Damascus is a walk down the road. It is not. It is not even in the same country. It's in what's now known as Syria. Okay? It is a 135-mile journey. This, willing, this guy is willing to go a long, long way to wipe out the way. So can you sense the hatred in his heart? Can you sense how against uh, the early church he was? And it's on this 135-mile journey, and we're not really sure where along the journey it happened. Right? Could have been a third of the way, half of the way, just before the city of Damascus. But my bet is he had a nice long walk afterwards to think about it because he was led by the hand. So anywhere in this journey, uh, somewhere in this journey, he was uh, confronted. His radical turnaround is about to begin. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1 is our, our start of our official passage today. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. So it's not like he was up to anything else. He made this his sole mission. We're going to get rid of these people. And was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation to arrest the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring both men and women back to Jerusalem in chains. There's a viciousness about this, right? Because why does he need to bring them back to Jerusalem? Because that's where they pronounce the death penalty for this. He is not messing around, right? This is one bad dude. In fact, I can't think of a more threatening dude other than a guy named Nero who uh, Paul has confrontation with later in his life. So he takes it on the road, packs up his change and his arrest papers, and heads for Damascus. And he, in his religious fervor, has pitted himself against the very God he claims to follow. And he's willing to do ungodly things 
to serve God. Right? I claim to follow God as well. Anybody else in this room want to claim that? I hate recalling the moments of my life when I thought I was so right enough to do ungodly things. To talk about people behind their backs, to slander, to criticize. And I've seen it over and over again in the church in in conflict situations. We can get derailed here thinking we're on God's side or God is on our side, which is kind of a silly thing to say because He's got His own side and He's perfect and He never changes sides. All you can do is get with them, right? But I think the most dangerous people out there in a conflict are those who think they are in the right and that they are on God's side. When in fact, they have their own side. And they're willing to do ungodly things to get it done. To get that thing done. Pride slips in and poisons our character and makes us slaves to our own opinions. When our opinions are wrong. And so, Paul may have been a bad guy. Right? But, we've got to recognize we have that same capacity even sitting in the church today. Right? We still can blow it and we can still go against God thinking that we're for Him. We need to be constantly keeping our eyes on Jesus, not the moral religious behavior. Keep them on Jesus and devote yourself to Him and keep your ears attentive to the Holy Spirit. And I want us to ask this question today. God, am I really doing Your will Or am I just doing my own thing? Now you look at this passage, Paul was definitely doing his own thing. And think about this. If a guy as well trained as Paul, you know, Paul was probably one of the the superstars of his day in the religious law. He knew God's rules up, down, back, and forward, right? He knew them well. And if he can get tricked by his own nature into doing what was evil, then we should be extremely suspicious of ourselves too. I'm not as smart as as this guy. Is anybody else? Right? But he he was right in on it. We need to constantly be be going before God and asking, God, turn me around. Give me a turnaround moment. In every area of my life, I want to turn around I want to stop doing my own thing. I want to do your thing in every thought that I have, every feeling that goes through my heart, and everything that comes out of my mouth, every action I take, everything I put in my schedule, all areas. I want to turn around. I want to stop my way and go your way. Paul's turnaround, it's coming. Right? And I'm certain nobody here is secretly planning, and I'm hoping not, but is secretly planning to arrest us all, throw us in jail, and do everything they can to get us murdered. If you're planning that, I would like to talk to you at the end of the service uh, in the back of the parking lot, far away from my car. Right? Uh, Nobody hears that evil. Right? So Paul's both brilliant and evil. And we've got the same issues. Uh, If he can be corrupted, so can we. And if God wants a turnaround from a guy that evil, He's willing to accept that turnaround, right? Isn't He willing to accept a turnaround from you? He wants one for you. Not so He can control and manipulate you, but so He can set you free. 
to be turned around in the right direction. Paul didn't ask for it, but one was coming. And so, in verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 3, we'll pick up the story. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission to go kill Christians, right? A light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, I'm going to pause here. There's, I watched a bunch of videos trying to get the mood of this moment. And uh, they didn't go very well. I, I, as I read the Bible and I read, watched these videos, I was like, I think these people, a lot of them missed the point. What I saw a lot was whiny Jesus. Saul, Saul, what are you doing? Come on. You're kind of persecuting me here. Right? I saw that oh, like on six different times. They were very gentle. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And I just, when I read this and the, the context that it's in, there's a little bit more fear involved, right? The tenderness is not really, I don't see any tenderness. And so here it is. The voice, he, uh, he fell to the ground and a voice, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Whoa. And something about this confrontation he knows right off the bat, oh, this is the Lord. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the, revo- and the voice replied, I am Jesus. You got that? The one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. End of conversation. Live in fear. The thing that, that kind of freaks me out about this is that as Paul is hearing this. His eyes are being blinded. Right? That's a terrifying thing. We have a few optometrists in in our church and they watch people go blind. And they watch the fear of that. Right? I had one time, I I got up from a chair and in my family, we have closed-angle glaucoma issues. And so uh, I started to see sparkles out at the edges. And my dad had an incident where he had to go emergency surgery to save his eyesight. It was terrifying to him. And I had this moment where I stood up in a chair and I saw the edges of my vision start to close. I can't tell you how freaked out I got in that moment. And here Paul is struck blind and yelled at by God and left there. Take a nice long walk into this city and somebody else is going to have to lead you there. Sometimes, that's you know, God has to come to us in that way. There's this, there's this terror in this moment. It's not a gentle course correction. This is not a whining Jesus. This is Saul being struck by what I would call a blinding glory laser. It's a forced spiritual turnaround that leaves Paul terrified and stumbling and blind. Whoa. This is further confirmed by uh, verse 7 here. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. They didn't know what to do. They were completely freaked out. And so verse 8, Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. 
So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, not eating for three days, that's not really a big deal. But not drinking any water or not extracting moisture from any food, that's very dangerous. In the best of circumstances, we can survive five days with very humid air at just the right temperature so we're not sweating. Human beings can survive five days if they're in ideal shape. But if the conditions change, they'll be dead in four. And many of them will be dead in three days. Your organs start to shut down. It is a very dangerous thing to do. Right? Don't try this theory if you're thinking of saying, ah, maybe Justin's right, maybe Justin's wrong. It doesn't end well for you. Don't go without water. It's a bad idea. All right? But do you get how distressed Saul was that he didn't go with water for three days? Usually when you're in mourning or having a difficult situation, you usually try to keep down water. He didn't even do that. Right? So this is an extremely distressed guy. If he doesn't drink soon, he'll be dead. And so before this happens, God relieves the stress on maybe the third or fourth day. He calls a man to come and lay hands on Saul. Acts 9.10 Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. Now, time out. This is not Judas that betrayed Jesus. He's dead. Okay, This is a different Judas. And Judas was a very common name in that day. And so you have to understand that when you say, you can't just say go over to Judas's house because there's a lot of Judas's house. You have to go to Judas on Straight Street. You get why the Scriptures are being so clear here? Right? So Judas on Straight Street. Okay, I'll, I, you know, sounds like a good guy. I'll go to his house, right? And when you get there, ask for, um, for, uh, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. Does anybody think Ananias has heard the reputation? Alright. Uh, Lord, can I go to Judas on Kirby Street instead of Judas on State Street? Any other Judas's house. I do not want to go to that house, Lord. Please. He knows that that man is a murderer of him of his family, of the people he's come to follow Christ with, right? He says, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I have heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. So he reveals the terror, doesn't he? Uh, uh, he probably turns into whiny Ananias. Ah, uh, Jesus. You know, and wants to go a different direction. But the Lord said to him, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so God compels Ananias to push through your fear. Go and obey. And so Ananias does, right? 
But he's also got to deliver bad news. Your, your sight's going to be restored, but guess what? I have a message of suffering to come. So not only does he got to go to a scary guy, but he's got to deliver scary news to this scary guy. Right? And when I look at this, it seems like hard news to Paul to live out this calling of suffering. Right? And when I look at Christianity, and some people from the outside, maybe you're considering our faith and, and following Christ, you're looking at them going, that's, that's a faith of, they seem to push themselves through a lot of things that, why don't we just have a nice free weekend? Why don't we sleep in on Sundays? You know, especially during daylight savings. But why don't we just, you know, let, let's take it easy, you know? And the Christians, they don't take it easy if they're doing it right. You know, they, they push and they're, they're struggling with God constantly. Later in life, Paul says that he was overjoyed to experience Christ in this suffering. And maybe you look at Christianity and say, uh, when you hear about the sacrifice and the surrender that it involves, you say, no thanks. I'm going to be in charge of my life, my time, my money. I like the whole idea of Jesus saving me and taking me to heaven, and that's good. I'll stay there, but I don't want to go any further. I don't want to give him up, all, give up all those things to him. It doesn't seem appealing. I would like you, I would like to invite you to reconsider surrendering every moment and every action. And I'm going to admit to you that this is uh, this involves a great amount of difficulty and challenge in surrendering to Christ. But the payoff is better than you can hope or dream. I've had, you know, in my own life, the experience of suffering for Christ. And it is awesome. And I know that sounds psychotic, but it is. I know that there are more trials and there are tragedies ahead. I've lived long enough. I'm 36 now, almost 37. And I figured out that pretty... i got another tragedy coming. I've got another trial coming. And so do all of us. Everybody believe? If you're young and you don't believe that, it's coming. Trial after trial and tragedy after tragedy await. You can do this alone with no one on the inside giving you strength and hope and freedom from fear. Right? Or you can take Christ in and experience the, the life that is so valuable and beautiful beyond description, even if it is suffering at times and difficult. Once Paul began to experience Christ, he began to know that the turnaround that was demanded of him was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. He didn't even ask. It was insisted upon him. And for that, he felt so humiliated, right? And so humble, I guess. Because he didn't even ask for it. Many of you have asked for it. But he didn't even ask. He didn't want it. He was out killing people who asked for it. Right? And so his surrender is, is, is not, was, you know, demanded of him. But the payoff was far better than he could hope or dream. He lived the rest of his life in gratitude. He loved following Christ. He never stopped speaking of the day that Christ saved him. This very story he repeats over and over, thanking God for His gracious mercy and saving him from the wicked man that he was. This is the best thing that could ever happen. So we pick up verse 17. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me 
to you that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. What was that? You know? I want to ask Mr. Atkinson. I saw him back there somewhere. I can see you all, by the way. Now, I want to ask him, what do you think that was? Was it burnt corneas? You know, that they had to be replaced? That God did instant surgery? Right? What was it, right? Or retinas? I don't know. I don't even know the terms. I just go to him and say, what's wrong with me, right? But his eyes were restored and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. I, I want to pause here and say, he didn't go and get a drink of water or eat food yet. Christ, save me. Uh, you know, I'm, I've got a new mission in life. Baptize me. Let's do this. You know, I'm, maybe when he was under the water, he took a few gulps down. Right? But afterwards, he ate some food and regained his strength. I laughed at that. I'm like, I think I know when he drank the water. Right? He took it all in. He got really baptized. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. And immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying... He is indeed the Son of God. Which he would have, if you would have said that to him three, four days ago, he would have had you arrested for blasphemy. Right? And now he's saying it. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Do you think this is... I think this is beautiful. He's a prosecutor and he switches to the other side and he says, wait a minute, I was wrong. Way, way, blindingly wrong. I see with new eyes the world around me. I see in the light of Christ now. And he starts using all his Old Testament knowledge and understanding to explain... This is the Messiah, and I'm willing to argue it, right? And he does. He lays it out before him. And then it says this, After a while, some of the, plot, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. Funny how things turn around, isn't it? Just in one, you know, one rant, he's like, we, they're like, this guy is now a threat to us. We've got to get rid of him. He is dangerous. Now, we end up, we find him, um, we find people trying to kill Paul for proclaiming Christ as the Messiah. Church tradition tells us that many years later, Paul is beheaded by a man named Nero. Right? Probably. Because of his strong testimony for Christ and his leadership in, in the church. Irony. You know, I love to laugh with the teenagers about how, how ironic God is. You know. But what's the practical application today? Nobody here is going to be a murderer, hopefully. Nobody's going to turn against the church, right? How do we take this story and put it into our own lives? No one seems to be needing a turnaround of that level, right? But we all need to continue seeking Christ and asking God. Where do you want me to turn things around? Where do you want me to stop? What do you want me to quit doing? We have this tendency as sinful humans, right, 
You may be super Christian, but you're still sinful human, right? We excuse ourselves from what God intends for us. We distance ourselves from responsibilities. Anybody want to claim guilty? You should probably just raise your hand, leave your hand up here for a while because I'm going to ask a bunch of things and you're going to be like, yeah, that's kind of me. We resist the call for commitment. We insist that we serve on our own terms. It's got to be my way or I'm getting on the highway, right? We withhold our money for more stuff for us, to pay for more experiences for us, to secure the things that we want to secure. We run from challenging people and challenging situations. We give in to ungodly demands of our times, of our time and our abilities, right? We keep, uh, we keep difficulty and discomfort at a nice, safe distance, right? Anything demanding, we just, ah, that's not, that's a little too much to ask, right? We avoid things like making a commitment to serve consistently. We're opening up our hearts and our lives to the people in a small group, right? I was at the men's breakfast and... I saw guys just kind of pour out their heart and lay out their heart. And I'm like, that's not an easy thing to do. But they did it. Alright? Admitting you're vulnerable, that you're weak, that you've got something to learn, that you don't know it all, that you want help. Or how about clearing your schedule to develop discipleship relationships? Alright? There's one command given to us when Jesus departed, go make disciples. Have you cleared your schedule to do that? Where? Where is it happening? It's a, it's a beautiful way to invest your life. Don't do it because you're supposed to. Do it because all of heaven is waiting to cheer you on. Clearing out our schedules, right? That's important. Pulling our kids from activities that take too much time and energy. I have to talk to parents about this all the time. Because this world wants your kids. They want them so busy, right? And so chaotic and so stressed they don't give a whole lot of time to, to allow Christ to permeate their being and to open their hearts and lives up to other believers in the church. Right? So let's be careful with how much we commit our kids to. Right? Resist a demanding coach or program director to support your spiritual, the spiritual lives of your children, to support their growth, growth. We found this coach that goes to our church named Jennifer Sargent. And uh, we we really like her, and she's done a great job coaching Elijah. And uh, the one thing that's just the best about her is if it's church time, it's not soccer time anymore. You will get a free pass. Have a great day. We'll, you know, try these while you're at home. She's a phenomenal coach, and I don't have to fight with her and resist her. Or my kid doesn't have to sit the bench because he loves Jesus. Right? And And so... I told some people about her, and now she's got 45 people trying to get on her soccer team. Do you think more people, more coaches would bend if we resisted a little bit? If we just made it a standard that you're not going to have the kids of Springbrook if you make that a requirement. What would happen? Because I know the athletes here. There's some great kids, right? But let's, make, let's, let's resist. Let's put up a fight because the world wants them, Right? How about, uh, this one is one of the scariest. Lowering the expectation of your employers by setting boundaries so that we can serve in our families. This is terrifying because it's your job. Right? You don't want to, you have to, 
you have to live with those people, right? You have to spend more, you have to spend more time with people at work than you do with your own family. And you want to make that situation a good situation. So you tend to give to the pressure. And let me just tell you, the more you're capable of, the more they're going to ask of you. And the more they find out that you can do, they're going to ask you to do. And they're going to try and get it as cheap as they can because that makes sense. That's business, people. And so know that that's there. It's always going to be present. They're always going to want more from you. And you always have to put up your boundaries. Right? I've got to tell you a story about my eldest brother. Uh, my brother Ryan. Um, sometime about a year to a year and a half ago, God started to do a turnaround in his heart. He, uh, he was the golden boy of his bureau. Um, and so let me tell you a little bit about that. Uh, of 10,000 employees, he was the youngest senior manager ever appointed by ten, almost 10 years. So that's a very early promotion. So they gave him things that they wouldn't give guys his age. High, high, high level responsibilities. People begged to be on Ryan's team. They gave him projects that, that other people had failed at and Ryan would do in half the time with a good team that loved him and was committed, right? He was doing very well. And the more he, they found he was capable, the more they asked of him. And he became a raging success. And then that voice of the Holy Spirit began to whisper to him. Ryan felt that God was calling him to turn his heart towards his wife and towards his seven children. That changes the story a bit, doesn't it? <laughs> So he started to lower his commitment to his employer and raise his commitment to his home. He put in less hours. He said no to extra projects. And he began to disappoint his boss. And after more than 10 years of outstanding reviews, Ryan received his first negative employee review. And negative is kind of an understatement. They told him that he was disappointing. And he became very critical. And he felt very reduced. And he went home just completely brokenhearted to tell Becky the bad news. No raise. Right? No, none of this stuff that I thought was great. Maybe I'm going to be miserable for a while in my company. And he came home to Becky and he told her the news, sat in front of her on the couch. And Becky stood up and wrapped her arms around him and said, I have a review for you. She said, you are the most godly husband and father I could ever want. And I approve of you. You are wonderfully. You've done a great job. And I don't want you to change that behavior. Here's the issue. If you're going to listen to the voice of God in your life, if you're going to have a turnaround, you're going to have to make some ungodly people unhappy. It's the way it works, right? Paul's people, unhappy enough to kill him. I'm not asking you to go to that level of conflict. Unless Jesus tells you to. That's always a caveat. If Jesus tells you to, then I... You know. But what I am suggesting here is that he wants to turn around in some area in your life. 
at all times, in every area, if you, you know. Maybe it's your job, like I talked about. You've got to put up some boundaries there. Maybe it's your marriage or your attitude towards it. It's time for a turnaround. Right? Is it the way you raise your children? Is it in the service that you give here at Springbrook? Do you need to turn around and say, ah, I'm going to stop holding this at arm's length and open both arms to it and hug everybody? Right? Is it the way you spend your free time? Is it the way you spend your finances? Is it in your commitments? Some of them need to be reduced. Is it in your entertainment choices or maybe a relationship with a friend or some kind of romance? So there are two questions here, and they both have two parts, so it's really four questions, but uh, I'm going to have them go up here on the screen. I'd like us to take a moment to ask ourselves these questions as we continue. God, where is my commitment level too high? I'm giving in. I'm, su- I'm surrendering to the demands. Right? What do I love too much? And the second one here is, where is my commitment level too low, Lord? What do I not love enough? Just take a few minutes to answer those questions in our hearts. And I think the Holy Spirit is going to speak to everybody individually on these questions. What do you love too much? What do you love too little? What are you too committed to? And what are you not committed enough to? And ask Him how to change. Say, Lord, help me turn around. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful that You turned me around at five years old, but that You keep turning me around and turning me to face You and turning me to walk towards You in the best life that I could live. Not in my own ability, but by Your ability. And I pray that each person in this room would begin to experience like Paul did, how wonderful it is to suffer for Christ, to do the hard things, to surrender our commitments and our lives to You. And I pray that we would just listen to Your Holy Spirit in this moment as we ask You, what am I too committed to? What am I not committed to enough? What do I love too much? And what do I love too little? God, would you just speak to our hearts right now? Lord, I was really distracted by the crackling of the roof. And the weird thing is going on in the room, and I, I don't know if everybody else is like me and they get distracted from the voice of your Holy Spirit. But I pray for those that didn't really hear anything in that moment, that they would continue to ask you, Where do, what do I need to turn around? And on the drive home or in the, in the quietness of their house or, or in their apartment or wherever they are, that they would take a moment to say, where is the turnaround, God? What do I love too much? What do I love too little? What am I too committed to? What am I not committed enough to? And turn our hearts towards your face.
Help us to see with new eyes those life that we could live in Christ. And for those that did hear from your Holy Spirit, God, give them application. Tell them what to do, what needs to change about the way they think, about the way they feel, about the way they see. Help them to understand this new life that you have to offer. And Lord, help us to continue asking that question. Lord, what do you want me to turn around? Or you want me to go in another direction? You want me to step out of or step into? God, help us to listen to your voice. Because the call to suffer for Christ is beautiful. We thank you for him and the way he gave us the chance to be turned around. It's in his name, Jesus' name we pray. Amen.